Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Roscoe. And today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Usually, Ariel and I like to have a very good idea of what we're going to talk about in our episodes to give you as much value early into the episodes as possible. But today, we wanted to take you through our design process for encounter design. And in order to do that, we need to be able to um, improvise. So we kind of know what we want to do. Each of us is going to take our own turn designing an encounter from scratch, and the other person is going to kind of just ask questions about them and help the other person refine their design or maybe think about things that they hadn't thought of or challenge them to maybe step outside their comfort zone. I think Ariel's going to go first. So Ariel, what type of encounter are you thinking that you want to design in today's episode? So for today's episode, we talked about what level we wanted to have this encounter for, and we settled on level five. So I thought of something that is very relevant to me at level five, is that this, I think, is one of the last levels where you can really fight a single, big, scary monster, and it'd be very challenging. And I think that's because starting at level seven, you get spells such as Polymorph and Banish, where... A single creature can be dealt with with one spell, with just a failed save. So instead of having to roll behind the screen and maybe fuss with the numbers on all these saves for these very important spells, maybe just for those higher levels run a more varied encounter. But I think the experience of a like single big monster is really beautiful and canonical to D&D, so I wanted to build that encounter for us today, which I think, Ray, is... Uh, you know, pretty different from the way you tend to design. So I, I'm i going to give it my best shot to make it hopefully still interesting enough for you, even though there's only one creature there. I, I think that fighting a single creature can be very interesting. A great example of a single creature that you can fight that is a much higher CR is a beholder, because it has many different tools with which to challenge the party. It embodies many different types of creature roles at once. So I think that fighting a single monster can be very interesting, very thematic, very D&D, but you have to give it some really interesting things, some maybe surprising tools in its tool bag to keep an encounter feeling fresh and dynamic. Right. And this is why these low CR monsters are often I think just a big bag of hit points if you are in a combat against them. Even if you are a level 4 or level 5, you can usually deal with one creature with just swinging your sword over and over again until it dies. And that is what I want to avoid as much as possible in these single combat interactions while still maintaining this high level of, oh, we don't have a lot of tools in order to defeat this thing. You know, I think sometimes when you even fight a Beholder, it can be a lot of situations where you're just trying to get rid of its legendary saves so that you can use your single target, very powerful spells at it. But at fifth level, you don't have those spells so much. So the creature I chose for this encounter design is the Barlgura, and it's a CR5. So I think this is also nice that I wanted to choose a creature where the challenge rating that Wizards provides for you is actually the challenge rating for your party. So we're going to do a level 5 party, a challenge rating of 5. I think that does not have to be the case. I think in general I try to go with higher CR than my party, or I try to add a lot of features to a fight if it's uh, challenge rating 5, like minions. But in this case I'm going to stick to challenge rating 5, 
and I'm going to stick to no minions. It's just the Barlguru that you're fighting. So if you look at this stat block, some things to point out, armor class of 15, that's pretty high, I think, for a 5th level party, but they're going to hit a lot of the time. Its hit points are 68, which is actually on the low side, I think. Its speed is 40 feet, which is, I think, nice that your party can't really run away from this creature. Where there are some other interesting creatures, like oozes, that can surprise your players, but if they know they're there, they can run away easily. I didn't want that to be an easy option for this encounter. So I think that fits really well with the Barlgura. The next thing that's really interesting about this creature is it does have spells at its disposal, because it is a magical fiend. It's not a beast. So we do get a couple spells, and the spells that we have access to here are Entangle and Phantasmal Force. And this is this thing where you get to engage with your party in a way that is not physical combat during a one-on-one -on -one fight, and I think it will be surprising. So I really like that aspect of it. And then the last spell that I can cast is Disguise Self, which will help us get the jump on our party. And surprising the party is really fun and also gives your creature a mechanical advantage whether it has a surprise round of combat. Yeah, I think that the Balgara on its face doesn't seem all that interesting, but if you use these abilities to great effect, you'll be able to challenge your parties. Uh, the Balgara looks like the typical brute, Big bag of hit points, a decently hard armor class to hit, but not high enough where you would expect less than 50% of your attacks to hit, so it's going to be getting hit often. But it has a few things here to trip up folks who are used to attacking perhaps like a gorilla or like a big beast. Right. So with these encounters, I tend to look at the stat block and I think to myself, what is missing and what do I want to add? Because there's two reasons for adding things to a stat block. One is because I think it's fun. It's a fun thing as a DM to do, to get a little bit of design work. But two, it kind of removes the meta-knowledge aspect of the game, where if your players know something about this stat block, they might subconsciously behave in a way where their player acts with meta-knowledge. You can combat that by adding something to the stat block. So in this case, what I want to do is I want to give the Balgura a magic item. So that's step number one when I'm thinking about how do I affect this encounter in an interesting way as a DM. That's like my design process. And I'm going to try to come up with a reason for it having a magic item. I think that's a little bit weird. And in this case, I want to say that this Balgura was summoned by a you know dark warlock, perhaps, and we need to fight this warlock, or we need something from this warlock. So I want the Balgura to be protecting this warlock, and for that protection, the warlock gave it a special magic item. So Ray, I'm looking at this stat block, we've got these spells that are interesting, and we've got uh, some really, you know, juicy attacks that you would expect from this kind of like gorilla-looking creature. It has three attacks that it can use. So what do you think could be a magic item that we might use to surprise the players a little bit to give it a little extra something it's going to be easy to get to and attack and if we want it to feel special or different from other brutes that our players are used to attacking like bears owl bears um, other other big monsters that hit hard and have a lot of hit points if you let them get close to you i think we should give the Balgara something that allows it to skirmish uh, and dip in and out of combat without incurring all that much damage. So we see that the Balgara does have this uh, running leap ability, which allows it to jump 20 feet into the air. 
maybe something that augments this leap ability that makes it so that the Balgara can jump to whatever part of the combat they want to be in without having to worry that they're going to take uh, anywhere between like two to four attacks of opportunity from the barbarians, fighters, and paladins, and rogues for that matter, that are going to close with this monster and try to just start hitting it. Okay, so I'm thinking maybe we could give it some kind of shield that it uses as a reaction that stops opportunity attacks. Maybe, is, is that somewhat of the thing you're thinking of? I don't know if there's a specific item that would kind of fit that, but is that kind of the idea of what you're looking for? Yeah, something to something to limit their effectiveness, at least. Uh, perhaps something that imposes disadvantage onto uh, enemies that are opportunity attacking it while it's using its standing leap feature. Because otherwise, we're not going to be able to use one of the things that it has on its stat block that makes it really interesting. Uh, to be able to close with the wizard or the healer that we want to entangle and then attack with advantage, either recklessly or because they're restrained, we're going to have to incur a lot of attacks of opportunity. Even if we're surrounded, we can get away, but we can't get away without taking perhaps like half of the total hit points that we have in damage in the process. Right. I actually like the idea of perhaps having a an effect that affects the player's ability to make opportunity attacks. So if I give a magic item that is a very loud piercing scream on its feet, perhaps, maybe something like that, such that when it jumps, it makes this really uh, stunning sound players have to save against, or they can't take opportunity attacks that round when it moves. So I don't know if I, every time I make an encounter design, I want to come up with a brand new magic item just from the top of my head. But I kind of really like this idea, and I, I would probably go with it. I don't care that much about where my magic items come from. I like making my own sometimes, for sure. I think that as a DM, you could just give this ability to a Balgara as well. And you wouldn't even have to explain to your players why this Balgara is different from other Balgaras. I think that's something that, that's a trap that we fall into as DMs a lot of the time. It can feel almost like cheating to make our monsters stronger than they appear in the monster manual. But our whole job as DMs is to surprise our players. And if I'm a player and I'm seeing monsters that I've seen a million times before because I'm a DM and I just know what to expect, it doesn't matter whether or not I'm role-playing correctly and like not metagaming. It's not all that surprising when the monster does what I expect it to, even if I'm pretending to be surprised as a character. That's a great point. I love the idea of breaking rules as a DM. So this is a rule I'll just break by adding a new ability to this Brawl Grow that uh, when it jumps, it releases a piercing scream against its DC 13 saving throw. And if they fail, they don't get to make an opportunity attack. So I really like that. And on top of that, maybe I'll give the Barlgura Brass Knuckles just to give it a plus one to hit and plus one to damage. That way we can make it a little bit spicier for a level five party, especially if there are more than three players. I think if there are three players, maybe I don't need to do that. But if there are four, I definitely do. 
And then the same rule applies here uh, that applied with the previous magic item. If you want to just up the monster's chance to hit and the damage that they do, you can totally do that. You don't need to give them magic items. But if you want it to look really cool and telegraph to the players the cool magic item that they could get after they win this fight, I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah, that's a really good point to highlight as well. One of the reasons I like to have visible markers for these things is so the players can target them or the players have knowledge when they're approaching the fight. When they see something different, something special about this creature, they know they're in for a tough fight. Uh, or if I gave the creature you know, a pendant uh, and it was something on the pendant that was affecting the creature's strength, uh, you could see with every turn its uh, veins swell and pump around this pendant and you can see like blood pumping to all of its muscles and that pendant gives it a plus one to its strength or a plus two to its strength such that it has a plus one to hit and damage, then the players can target that pendant as well, which is a, a fun thing to do, I think, uh, from a strategy perspective. So I like to kind of go towards, you know, giving the players something visual to latch onto that is changing the combat, but you can also just change the rules yourself, like Ray said. I, I think that's extremely appropriate. The next step for Design Encounter, once I've kind of figured out what the monster is doing and if there's any way I want to beef up the monster and make the fight a little more special, is to put together some sort of terrain. I really like when the terrain in an encounter is different and affects the encounter. So for this one, I think it could be pretty obvious. We could have vines hanging down and a lot of vines growing wherever we are such that Something about this place is magical. Maybe this Brawlgur was summoned, and up, when the portal was opened for it to be summoned from the abyss, it changed the terrain of where it was summoned from. And so now we have all these vines, and that can enable the Brawlgur to do this jumping and hanging on from the ceiling like we wanted before. And it also makes it a very weird space for the players to enter. They're going through a large tower or a mansion where this warlock has summoned the Brawlgur, and every room is normal, and suddenly... They open a door and there are vines everywhere and it's a jungle inside this room. I really like that idea. So that's kind of my next starting point. So I'll try to come up with some mechanical ways that this jungle room is going to affect the combat. And one of the ways is obviously hanging down from things. Um, but I don't know, Ray, is this, does this give you a kind of any inspiration for a mechanical change? Potentially. I think that it's a thematic idea because this Balgara kind of looks like a gorilla, even though it's not. Maybe I would make it so that there are chains hanging from the ceiling, something that's a little more like demonic. And I like the idea that the Balgara could latch onto these chains and use them to move around, but it only has physical means of attacking. So I think perhaps... While this idea is very thematic and perhaps adds to the description of the room, I don't foresee how that will change the combat all that much. Just so that uh, on that the I... player's turns, oh, they ahead. can't use melee attacks. Ah, uh, so the Balgara drops down on the beginning of its turn, attacks, and then uses perhaps the rest of its movement to jump up and grab the chains? Exactly. I think that's a great idea. And that contributes to the idea of the Balgara having increased escapability to be able to get away exactly and it also has the spell entangle that we've talked about where if you do find a good place to use it you can use those thematics of the chains that are around there can be chains on the ground too that rise up and entangle the players or you could flavor the casting of the spell such that the balgura whips on a few of the chains around him and they snake through the, all the patterns of chains on the room and the whipping motion that he does on the chains on the ceiling 
wrap the players in the chains, that it's uh, a spell that has a physical manifestation rather than it like magically just happens in one fell swoop. Uh, yes, a physical ability uh, that is that is more easily described by a spell description. I think we see this a bunch of times when some enemy is able to breathe fire. The rules will simply say this creature can innately cast flaming hands, for example. Exactly. So I think with the entangle spell as an innate spellcasting feature for the Balgura, this could work really well. So one of the things I do with terrain is I try to make it so that on initiative count 20, something happens relative to the terrain. Perhaps the, the chains are living and they swipe at the players. An attack happening on initiative count 20 is interesting, but I don't think it's as fun as a saving throw on initiative count 20 because saving throws have consequences, whereas attacks just deal some damage which a lot of time don't have consequences. I mean, unless you're going to TPK your players, the damage doesn't change their ability to interact with the combat. They're just, you know, doing the same thing if they have 30 hit points or 26 hit points. So are there any kind of things that you might have to do on initiative count 20 to save against some feature of the terrain? And fear is one. The Balgura is a fiend. It doesn't have a like frightening stare. But maybe since you're in its lair, it's a lot scarier. That's kind of one option I was thinking. The other option I was thinking was maybe you sink lower into the chains on initiative count 20. And every time you fail, you your movement speed is uh, lowered by 5 feet. What do you think of those? What do you mean by uh, sink lower into the chains? That, that the floor of the dungeon is like covered in uh, like layers and layers of chains? Yeah, something like that, or or vines or something. Mm. I, yeah, I like I like the idea of reduced movement um, because it emphasizes how much movement the uh, the Balgura has. Fear is a, a good one, but is a little bit I think perhaps overused maybe in Dungeons and Dragons, and is kind of like the special sauce of chromatic dragons. Right, I was thinking that too. So I think the Entangle spell is a save, but it's something that the Balgara typically has to do on its turn. Perhaps, instead of having to use Entangle on its turn, it is strictly a like layer action for this Balgara. Yeah. Where these like fiendish ethereal chains shoot up from the ground and kind of like attach themselves or attempt to wrap themselves around the players, restraining their movement. I like this a lot because it is a 20-foot square, which means the players get to move around and space themselves out such that they, on initiative count 20, it's the Balgura has to choose which one of them it's affecting. So I like that idea a lot, that it's a 20-foot square where the Balgura can focus on and control during a specific uh, you know, turn based on who he thinks he needs to entangle. Uh, I really like that idea. And something that's worth pointing out here is that the Balgara has a very low intelligence score, but it has a very high wisdom score. So from these statistics, what I think about is the, the Balgara is not very smart. It doesn't know things that one would have to study to understand, and it, it can't figure out new problems. But what it does have is instinct and that makes me think that it knows how to use the tools at its disposal effectively. But once your players start to figure out how to bypass the Bulgara's 
skills and abilities that it uses to hunt and fight, the Bulgara isn't going to be able to adapt all that well, which is all right because the encounter that you've designed, Ariel, is fairly nefarious uh, and is going to be difficult for the players to even kind of like figure out and play around the initial challenges that you've presented to them. Yeah, I mean, that's the fun of it. So I haven't even gotten to my my strategizing, which I think is the third part that I'm most interested in. The strategizing for the Ball Girl, this is where I was thinking about what you were saying, Ray, with the int versus wisdom. I would like for the Balgura to be invisible because uh, it can cast invisibility on itself twice a day. So clearly that's a, an option that's available. When your party enters its lair, it's going to be invisible. And hopefully against level five party, that will mean it will get a surprise round. And we were kind of talking about this. If you're the Balgura, do you use the surprise round to cast Phantasmal Force and make one of the party members feel like they are trapped in a cage? And they need to leave the the walled cage before they can fight the Bongura? Or do we use it to just get, you know, a reckless attack going where we do three attacks against one character and just try to take out the spellcaster in one go? And maybe the Bongura is not smart enough to target a specific spellcaster. Or maybe it is because it knows that, you know, it was summoned by a warlock and spellcasters are very strong, strong enough to summon it. So it goes and it spends three reckless attacks on a spellcaster and really tries to get them to go down. I think it would be like a really interesting way to start the combat where you ask them to make a saving throw and you describe to them how chains have shot up out of the ground and are restraining them. And that's actually the phantasmal force. Because Phantasmal Force, you believe that this thing is happening to you. And then when one of your other players says like, oh, can I help them out of the chains? It's like, it's interesting. You don't see the chains. That's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, it's just the perfect setup. It's the perfect setup to say there, this thing is happening to you. And then when a different player tries to interact with it, you tell them, what are you talking about? You don't see anything. I think that's a really fun moment as a DM. And you're kind of screwing with your players a little bit. But I think it's enough fun at the table and if you don't do that all the time it'll be a really good moment and there's a reason to screw with them it's the phantasmal force it's a magical effect and then that's when the Bulgara invisible drops from the chains behind the party and maybe doesn't attack a spellcaster but attacks the person in the back of the group which we see some we see predators do this in the wild all the time so uh like animals attacking like a weaker or a slower gazelle for example so maybe this happens to be a spellcaster, or perhaps your party decides to put a tank in the front and a tank in the back, and it's the tank in the back that's attacking the Bulgara. Lucky for them. Yeah, I like that too, because I would describe that to my players. I would say the Bulgara, the Bulgara drops from above, and it picks off the slowest member of your party and attacks, and then I'll say whoever is in the back. And I think that that is a really cool moment to show where I am using this more animalistic instincts and I'm picking on a specific player because of a choice the party made, who is in the back. And it's, it feels natural and cool and makes the players feel like their decisions mattered. If they did put a tank in the back, they've succeeded in some way at covering their backside. Yeah, no, I think I think this sounds like an awesome encounter. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of fun for lower level parties to encounter lair actions like this that aren't so devastating. You know, I think maybe you do take down some of your players 
if they're in a situation where they fail a lot of saving throws, because I am throwing a lot of saving throws at them. But I think for a, you know, fifth level party to do 68 points of damage against a armor class 15 creature will probably take less than three rounds. So I, I actually think they'll be okay. Yeah, this sounds really interesting. All right, Ray, you're up. What is your encounter design that you wanted to show me today? So I was actually recently asked to design a stat block that I haven't gotten around to designing just yet. This player wants me to design a vampire pirate captain, uh, which I think is super interesting, and a crew, like a supporting cast of vampire pirate crew members that would also be on his ship and help in an encounter with said pirate captains. That's really cool. I really love that idea because it's coming from your player, so you know they're going to be really excited about it. And vampire plus anything else is great. Combining genres, gothic plus pirate is really, really fun. I also love the idea that this pirate captain can't leave their ship because they can't cross like running water. Yeah, that's a great point too. Super interesting. Lots of pieces going on there. So their players are actually level 10. So this is going to be a different tier of Dungeons and Dragons. We're trying to challenge a completely different level of adventurer with this encounter design. Right. And the interesting points there are, I think, mostly come from what spells you can cast. But there are other tricky things too, such as armor class. Like armor class is a very important choice at high level because a lot of your melee attacks are going to be coming much faster. And so since there are more attacks, the armor class has a bigger impact. Definitely. And your spellcasters have many, many, many area of effect spells at their disposal, and they aren't going to run out of those effects. They'll run out of their most potent effects but they are not going to run out of abilities to control large numbers of weak enemies all at once. So this is a question I have with these high-level encounters for myself. Are you designing this with your players at full power, or are you designing this with your players having used some of their spell slots? I think for this encounter, we'll design at full power, so that way we can really just unchain these enemies on the players, and we don't have to hold anything back. Do you have any examples of uh, some things that 10th level players would have just uh, to kind of ground us? That's looking at 5th level spells, I think, right? Yeah, so we're talking about 5th level spells. So your wizard almost definitely has Cone of Cold, which for anybody who doesn't know the details of Cone of Cold, it's like super, super mega fireball. Your clerics have access to control water, which is going to allow them to create whirlpools and tidal waves. So we have to be prepared for that possibility as well. Our fighters and our other melee characters are going to be dishing out heaps and heaps of damage at these levels. If they don't have a plus two weapon yet, they most certainly have a plus one weapon. And our paladins are going to be able to be dropping... I believe, third level smites at this level. So that's going to be 5d8 damage because don't forget, we are designing an encounter against undead and they are going to be getting an extra damage die on those divine smites. Right, so if you are putting up a real good damage dealer against one creature, they're probably going to be able to kill that creature in a round. You know, if we're talking about assassin rogues, for instance, or we're talking about monks, they can they can do a lot of things in one round. 
if we're talking about assassin rogues or barbarians, they can deal a lot of damage in one round at these levels, and they can take somebody out. Yeah, so let's think about kind of what we, what we need here. We need a pirate captain, and the fantasy that we're trying to fulfill for this pirate captain specifically is that they are a skirmisher. So they are able to basically get into combat with characters, attack, and get out without incurring attacks of opportunity. They're going to be mobile, and they're going to have the ability to dance around the battlefield, which is decided for us. So the combat's either going to take place with two ships side by side if they're a boarding party, or perhaps this these zombies attack their ship, or it will just be taking place on the vampire captain's pirate ship. I like the idea of side-by-side -side ships just because I would love to draw that on a battle map, and I would love for the players to think about how to interact with two ships rather than just one, with the idea that they could possibly try to move one of the ships, you know, with control water. So I, I would go for two, but do you think that's kind of a little too much to handle as a DM? Yeah, let's zoom in and do just the two ships side-by-side. We have some planks that are allowing the players to board if they can. And maybe there are some hanging ropes from both ships that can be used to swing aboard the other ships. For those ropes, is that would that be an action to use one of the ropes? Is that what you're thinking? I think it would probably be an interact with object or a bonus action at the most. And I would probably require an acrobatics check to use them or an athletics check. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Cool. So player that has requested, he's a DM, but he has requested that there be two primary lieutenants that the pirate captain trusts. So they're going to be almost as powerful as our pirate captain and still cool and worthy of note, but not as powerful. And those two roles are going to be a traditional sneaky rogue and the storm cleric. Okay. And I think another option here could be a battle master because when you have anybody who is in charge of other people, Battlemaster obviously makes a lot of sense, and they, you can yell commands, and it's very thematic. So I like your choices a lot just for a stormy person on a ship makes a lot of sense. You can use a lightning out on a stormy waters, and then a rogue also makes a lot of sense because it's very piratey. Uh, I was just thinking for specifically this combat, and combats like this, Battlemaster can be a really fun way to go as a DM if you're prepared. I think that a battle master or a veteran or a champion make good pirate stat blocks as well if you're looking for like more of a brute captain. But I think the swashbuckler rogue is the archetype that DM is trying to fulfill with this pirate captain. One of the things I wanted to mention here is having three people in charge of a group of minions means that your minions can do three different things on the battlefield. Because oftentimes I have my minions listen to commands. So, you know, whoever is in charge of this fight is issuing out commands and they'll behave. And that way it makes it easier for me to run. But if you have three commanders, you can have them deal three different commands to their minions. And I think that's still manageable to run and you get to have a very dynamic combat. Oh, I see. It allows our minions to be a little more versatile. Exactly. And they can split off into different groups. Do you think that we should have specialized minion groups to reflect the different specializations of the like the pirates in charge? Oh, that could be really cool. I like that idea a lot. Cool. So I think we're I think we have some ideas here where the the general crew 
are going to be skeletons. They are going to be crew members of vanquished foes that this pirate group defeats. They're going to turn those fodder sailors into skeletons. They're going to be our infantry. They're going to be our minions. And I think that for the ease of running the encounter, the point of these minions are to clog up the choke points on our battle map and stop the players from being able to get into optimal positioning or make it a little bit harder for our players to get it into optimal positioning. Yeah, and if you're looking for some thematics with these skeletons, you can use a little bit of a Pirates of the Caribbean feel. And when they're in direct sunlight, they look like they have flesh. But when they're in the shade, you can see that they're just skeletons. Uh, something weird like that where it's just fun and thematic and maybe isn't changing any of the mechanics, but make your players feel like they're in Pirates of the Caribbean. I think that's a great idea. I think any time that you can borrow a, like a really thematic thing from something that everybody knows unapologetically, I think that it's a hit with your players. I think that as DMs, we are reluctant to do it because it feels like we're being unoriginal. And perhaps if you were writing an adventure that you were hoping would get published and picked up by other DMs and, and run, then you'd be right. I think that maybe this might be too much of a transgression unless you're trying to be really campy. But if we're just running this for our players, that sounds awesome. If I was fighting these zombies, that's how I would want them to behave. Exactly. For me, when I'm playing with my players, uh, the number of times they've said, oh, Ariel, that's so derivative, versus the number of times they've said, Oh my god, wait, this is just like Indiana Jones is, uh, you know, I'd say like zero to a hundred. Yeah, I don't think any of my players have ever said, wow, I really hate that I'm experiencing firsthand this epic scene from this movie that I love. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that what we want to do is we want to, this, this sounds like a pretty huge and epic encounter. We want to employ as many tools as possible to make this encounter easier to run for ourselves as we possibly can. So I think what this means to me is that we're going to give our skeletons basically an auto hit armor class to make sure that they're always getting hit if attacked. If our players are gonna spend an action attacking a skeleton, guess what, they're gonna kill a skeleton. So I think we're going to give them a single hit point of health. And I think that we're going to make their AC basically negligible. Uh, we'll make their AC 8, which if we're fighting level 10 adventurers, they're almost always going to hit because their bonus to hit will get them well above 10 to hit most of the time. So the only time that they'll miss is on a critical failure. Yeah, I was thinking like 11 could be a very low, easy armor class for this level and maybe that you get uh, one's miss and two's miss, you know, something like that. I think a, a, a design thing that I'm going to stick to here just because of, of my style is I basically never want my players to miss a skeleton because the point of the skeletons are not to be hard enemies. They are a drain on the player's resources. They are an obstacle that needs to be cleared that is mobile and can be directed by the enemy forces. They're almost like a part of the layer more than they are um, some like a problem to be dealt with. Yeah, definitely. I like it. Cool. And it's going to make the players feel more epic when these 
minions have a hard time hitting them as well. They're just there to kind of like clog up the works and occupy the attention of any crew members or NPCs that the players have brought along with them. So that way they're not invalidating the combat that is occurring on the enemy pirate ship. Yeah, and I think they are fodder for uh, area of effect spells. Because if there are only three enemies and you're level 10 and you want to cast Cone of Cold, uh, I think it's a little bit less exciting than when there are like 11 enemies and eight of them die. <laughs> I think that's a very fun experience as a high-level character. Absolutely. The one time I made an encounter for my players to fight against where there was a beholder at the top of a shaft or this giant cylindrical cavern, and the bottom of the cylindrical cavern was covered in these like mind-controlled, like zom not zombies, but like almost zombie type humanoids and once the combat started they started to like stir and they were going to start climbing up the cylinder towards the combat that was occurring between the beholder and the players and my player circle of death 120 of these <laughs> innocent mind-controlled humans all at once wiped them all out and that was an awesome moment for that player i didn't know that that's what they were going to do i thought they were going to be a little bit harder to deal with but it was a huge hit wow that's crazy i probably if that happened wouldn't then would not tell my party afterwards that they were innocent in my head to start the the campaign i think they knew yeah i think they knew <laughs> he he used the spell in a in a crowded marketplace as well a few sessions later so oh my god yeah yeah they're terrorists now there are wanted posters of them and they're 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 considered terrorists um so well, that'll be, go. be interesting to see where this campaign goes from here <laughs> So we we know what our, our like small tiny minions are. But now let's kind of like figure out what the one or two cool things we are going to make about the lieutenants and the major pirate captain. Let's start with the major pirate captain because I wouldn't want to have to compromise on an ability that I was excited about him having because we've already given one of the lieutenants something similar. What we want them to be able to do is use their sneak attack when they are in combat with another player we want them to be able to deal a large amount of damage with another player when that player is isolated so because we know this is going to be a crowded ship to ship combat it's rare that these two players are going to be fighting alone they're often going to be surrounded by other enemies so i think we're going to give this boss character an enhanced version of rakish audacity that means that they're going to be able to deal an increased amount of damage when they are attacking a single enemy in their turn and they don't split their attacks up between multiple enemies hmm, i like it i was trying to think when i have these kinds of cool abilities i like to signal them in some way so i was thinking when you first mentioned rakish audacity to say something like there's no one to protect you now or looks like you're all alone and kind of have the, a little banter between the villains and the heroes. But I'm wondering, if, is there a good, can we set up some good banter for this rogue when saying, I'm only focusing on you? I think that's a great idea. I think something that we see in the fantasy of pirate combats is that the two captains are fighting against one another and the other crew members 
are not really interfering all that much. So that's where this second ability comes in, where I think we're going to want to introduce an element of compelled duel yes, here. Yes, when you said it, I thought of that. Exactly. If we look at the compelled duel spell, it puts the target in the situation where they, they if they attack someone other than the person who cast compelled duel, they are attacking with disadvantage. So what I think we want to do as well is impose the same infringements on anyone who's attacking the pirate captain. So we are going to introduce this weird vampiric mistiness thing that's going to happen where this pirate captain is going to single out, is going to mark a specific enemy with a very, very hard to defeat uh, saving throw. We're going to choose a saving throw DC of uh, level 10. Let's do a saving throw DC of 17. Yeah, I was thinking 16 if you want to make it a little bit on the easier side, but still appropriate for level 10. And 17 if you want to make it a little bit on the harder side, but still be appropriate for level 10. I think we're going to do 17, and the effect is going to be that the pirate captain and the targeted player enter the ethereal plane but they are still visible to everybody else that is on the material plane of existence so they're able to see almost like the ghostly versions of these two figures who are battling against one another in like this epic combat um, but they are unable to interfere that is just freaking cool i'm wondering like if you wanted to really push it you could almost make it like the a like pocket dimension for the captain and make it a little bit more like vampire-y and a little bit more like dastardly evil ghoulish pirate than just ethereal but that's i think maybe signaling to your players that this vampire is more powerful than they actually are or maybe you know it's 10th level it's it's pretty big deal like maybe you could have this like pocket dimension style mechanic Hmm. I, I think I really like what you are saying because we're like channeling a little bit of Strahd here. So maybe we go instead of an ethereal plane, the mists wrap around these two players and they're still visible. Their battle is visible to everybody who is watching, but there's this like m this cold mist that's like coming off of their bodies, almost like smoke. Like uh, if you're really warm on a cold day, it looks almost like you're kind of like steaming off. And anyone who tries to like attack this pirate while he's in this form or help an ally while they're in this form, they like they pass through uh, and they they can't be interfered with. So now we've achieved the fantasy of like the two strongest combatants fighting against each other uh, on this grand stage where no one can interfere. I think that what the pirate captain is going to do is he's going to choose the player who is most able to engage in single combat to use this ability on because for him, it's not about being like tactically sound and choosing the the cleric to fight in single combat because that would be the smart thing to do for him it's all about the glory and his hubris and uh like putting on a show basically of force and superiority but also like defeating their captain in single combat and the other lieutenants are going to be the members of the enemies that fight a little bit more underhandedly i like it yeah there's 
some level of honor at the highest level. Uh, and even though at the lower levels, uh, there's no honor among thieves. But for the captain, there, there is some honor. Right, because he has that privilege because he's just so much more powerful <laughs> than everybody else that he has the privilege of fighting with honor, whereas um, the, the others know, know better almost. So I think this is this is cool. That's basically all we need for this pirate captain. We could choose any base stat block that we think has like some solid stats that will challenge our most powerful player. I would take a look at the champion stat block if you're looking for like base statistics. The assassin stat block would be a great place to look. Champion's an interesting one because I think they get a whole ton of hit points and three attacks, right? Yep. So I think that would be a great example. Assassin is nice because it's going to channel the sneak attack damage that we want to be able to pile on. So maybe this, the we are channeling a little bit of a rogue here. I would take a look at the Jarlaxel Bayenre stat block from Waterdeep Dragon Heist. If you're looking for something that has legendary actions, if maybe your players are level like 12 or 13 instead, I think that would look pretty good. And then I think some Thing that the pirate captain would do if he starts to win this one-on-one -on -one combat with this player is I think that after he defeats them and has his sword at their throat, I think he would offer them their life if they swore to serve him on his ship as one of his lieutenants. And I think that would be a really interesting situation to put a player in because you are running the risk of murdering a player in single combat if you rip them out of the combat this way and prevent their allies from being able to help. This can be a heroic moment if you have a player who wants to change characters or is who okay with their character dying. That, oh, your character actually isn't dead dead you're not going to be piloting your character for the next few sessions you know roll a new character uh and maybe you guys go try to save your fallen combat who has gone into servitude under this vampire captain it's a little bit like pirates of the caribbean again we're just using these really awesome tropes where um bill has to go save his father from servitude under davy jones i thought you were actually going to say the exact opposite there where you said this is an awesome death for your players where they they're choose they're ch given the option to choose between life and death and they choose I would rather die than become a vampire uh, under your command. Oh, amazing too. Yeah. I think they're both really awesome. Uh in the one hand I was thinking, oh maybe if you choose to serve then you can use that as a way to say leave my the rest of my ship be. If you leave if you let them live and let them sail away, I will serve under you. And that, that way it's like a hero's end. Uh, but saying I'd rather die than serve for you is kind of like a, you know, gritty, like, I'm not going to take your crap end. And I think that's also very, very heroic and very, very fantasy fulfillment kind of vibes going on. I think this is a good way to maybe draw out the combat as well. Um between, between those two members, because once they start having this conversation, which gives the other players time to win the combat, the, the combat that's happening ship to ship, and maybe it forces the captain to withdraw. If you're, if you can tell and you can read the room and your players are very much disliking this situation that they're in because they feel like it wasn't their fault, they didn't have any agency in getting pulled into this fight with this pirate captain, this conversation about servitude 
gives the other players an opportunity to win the ship-to-ship combat and force the pirate captain to withdraw, perhaps he vows that he will find a way to get that other player to agree to serve him. And now all of a sudden you have a villain who's going off and looking to figure out ways to blackmail a player. Now, after this combat, it has become personal. I, I really like it. I would say for me, I would give myself some like guidance beforehand where I would say, I'll spend two rounds where the captain doesn't uh, make any attack actions, where the captain is just trying to persuade the, the PC to join them. And during those two rounds, I love the idea that your PC is getting either free attacks at the captain or getting attacks at disadvantage at, you know, other lieutenants to try to, like, save this fight. Well, you have to remember, they've been pulled out of the the fight. They are, they, they can no longer... Oh, they can't even attack with disadvantage. They just can't attack at all. Yeah, I think that I think they would be effectively on the the ethereal plane, which means that if they're a character who has abilities like blink to get to and from the ethereal plane, they have a way of escaping this ability as well. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, I like the idea that you might even be able to spend two rounds like attacking the uh, attacking the captain, where the captain is maybe taking the dodge action or doing something such that. They're being non-aggressive. They're saying, I've already won this fight. There's nothing left for you to do. Uh, I'm going to take you under my servitude. And maybe only one round of that if uh, the fight is a little bit more evenly matched and the vampire is, you know, close to death. Yeah. And I think maybe the, the vampire is offering power, magical secrets, anything that you know your player covets and wants. He's like eternal life. There are so many things that the captain could use to persuade. Yeah, maybe you only have to serve for two years, you know, make it so it sounds almost like possible. It's like, oh, two years, you know, that's not long in the scheme of things. So now we now we just need to design the two lieutenants. This combat is already complicated enough where I think that we don't want to introduce more medium level bad guys. So those kind of like those 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 groups of pirates under the command of the other lieutenants who are like more special. Because uh, we already have a lot to worry about. So maybe I would have some vampire crew members who are like actually proper members of the crew who are, are similar in uh, ability to the skeletons where they're they're kind of minions. Like they are, they're, they're dampiers. They're not full on vampire spawn where they have maybe like 10 hit points. They don't have a great chance of hitting. Um, maybe I would take like bandit captain stat blocks and give them them this and bring the health way down. So that way they still hit hard, they still do a lot of damage, but if they get hit with a focused attack, they're going to die. Yeah, it's interesting. If you actually use a vampire stat block, I think that's one way to make the other crew members uh, very challenging. I, I think that you know vampires are not easy to kill, even if they're just the base vampire stat block. So I think that will make your combat difficult and fun, especially for a larger party, maybe a party of five. I don't know, if you only had a party of three, I think this is a very difficult challenge, Ray. Yeah, yeah, this would be tough. <laughs> um, if it was a party of three, I think maybe I'd leave the lieutenants out and have the, the captain be the only 
big bad. But I, I like that idea of taking the, the vampire stat block as our base stat block for these two lieutenants. But they're tough. Vampires are tough. So we're going to get some, some really decent stats. We're going to get an ability to charm players, which is should not be underestimated. And that gives us like some really good survivability. The same problems with like mist form apply where the vampire is going to go into mist form and then when they die and then they're going to uh, disappear below decks through like the cracks in the wood because these vampires coffins are like down in the the uh, like the cabins of the ship, uh, which may send uh, some of your party members running after them to try and find where their coffin is so that they would, can finish off this vampire before they reform. The rogue, not to be confused with the swashbuckler, the rogue uh, first mate that we need to design that my, my friend asked for, I think what we're going to give them is the ability to turn invisible in between attacks. So we're going to give them a bonus action casting of invisibility if they are able to land their surprise attack and what that is going to allow this enemy to do is to target our squishies so this enemy is going to be going well while the players are trying to board and get onto the other ship to attack in melee while the tanks and the skirmishers are trying to do that, the wizard and the cleric are probably going to stay behind because even from the safety of their ship, they're going to be able to target who they need to with their different spells. And that's when this vampire appears next to them, is once their, their defensive uh, characters have already boarded the other ship, now this assassin appears in their midst is and is attacking and turning invisible. I like that because it's no more added work for the DM. You're not choosing extra targets, you're not casting spells, you're just being invisible, making it difficult for the other players to interact with this unseen attacker. Yep, and then this gives the players opportunities to use things like fairy fire. It gives the players opportunities to use things like glitter bomb, which is the spell from CDM's Arcadia that we saw. It gives them the ability to pocket sand <laughs> the invisible character. It's a problem that they need to solve. And then I think the cleric is going to stay on the enemy ship. I think what they're going to do is we're going to give them maybe three potential spell-like abilities. We're not going to make them a full caster because full casters are really hard to run. I think we're going to give them three spell-like abilities that Tempest clerics would get, and we're just going to make them character abilities instead. So, call lightning. Call lightning. We're going to give them call lightning. We're going to give them thunder wave. And what's one other one that we should give them? I mean... You could let them cast Call Lightning multiple times, but only let them cast Chain Lightning once per day. That could be... These I mean, are 10th level characters. Yeah, it's probably that's probably too much. It's probably too much. <laughs> I, I actually... I, I think they put Chain Lightning on the enemy sheet. Like, look it up, add it to the enemy sheet, and have it up on your computer while you're running this combat. And if your players seem like they're doing really well against the combat and they're closing with this cleric really, really quickly... Um, maybe there's like a barbarian and a fighter that are closing with this cleric because the paladin got picked by the captain to go into single combat. Chain lightning is a good way 
to put the fear of God into those players. So give them one casting of Chain Lightning, a Call Lightning, a Thunder Wave, and maybe some type of like spiritual weapon, perhaps, and maybe Blink. So like just put those abilities so they're the same way that the captain can go into this ethereal realm, so too can the Storm Cleric. Yes, one of the ways I've done this Chain Lightning thing effectively where I gave the enemy an extremely powerful last minute last ditch effort is by using their spell casting focus as the object that they have to break in order to cast this spell so they have a spell casting focus they use it when they cast all their spells uh, if the things are getting very bad they break it cast chain lightning once but can no longer cast any other spells and it's a last ditch effort it's kind of like your um, enemies cashing in on a very, very powerful resource that they didn't want to cash in on. I've done this with lots of different enemies where they have a, you know, secret hidden thing that they ha get a consequence for if they use it. They can, you know, really mess up your players, but there's a consequence if they use this thing, and it allows me as the DM to make interesting choices during combat and kind of adjust the lethality of the combat mid-swing. I think that makes a lot of sense. You could definitely do it that way. I think I would open with chain lightning just because of my personal style, but I really like last ditch effort um, way of doing things as well. Also very, very dramatic. I think another cool thing that we would give this cleric, which would just be an ability, is once during the combat, after a sufficient number of your crew members have died to the skeletons that are like boarding and running across the ship. And I would basically just like make these skeletons that are boarding and coming up from below decks almost infinite. I don't think I would ever, I think they should come in waves um, and I don't think you should really run out of them. It's going to make the cleric harder to get to, which I think is important so that the that it's hard for your players to sift through these waves of skeletons to get to them. I think a cool ability that we should give them once is that they can raise all of the crew members that were on your ship that have fallen to the skeletons as new skeleton zombies to like serve in their army. It might, I mean, that, that action might force one of the tanks who was trying to get onto the enemy ship to go back and help the uh, like the cleric and the wizard who are still back on your ship which i think would be super nifty i have one more question yeah go ahead i was gonna ask so you said this missed ability that the leader gets uh could have a dc you know a 17 let's say maybe your players succeed on that twice and over those two rounds they do a lot of damage and manage to really incapacitate the leader in some way do the lieutenants stop when the leader dies? And, and maybe this can't really happen after two rounds of combat, but maybe after like six rounds of combat and the lieutenants are still alive, but you've managed to kill the leader. Uh, do you, do the lieutenants stop when the leader dies or do they keep on fighting? I think that's a great question. I think there are a few, I think there are a few questions baked into that question. Um, the first is, should we make the leader's ability harder to resist? Because it's so important to this encounter's design. And I think maybe the answer is yes. I think maybe the answer is we up the DC of this save to 18 or 19, but we make it so that they can only use it once. Um, like So that way, if he fails in this ability, the captain goes and engages with that player in combat on the material realm, uh, so that way the captain isn't wasting rounds of combat doing something that isn't cool. 
It's cool that the players shrug off the effects and it like shocks and enrages the captain, which is going to feel good. And then he just engages in combat. Maybe we should make it harder to resist because it's so important to the cinematics and the fantasy of the encounter that we're trying to build. And then the other thing that you asked was, will the lieutenants continue fighting? And the answer is probably no. So, so here is the question of, what happens when your players come up with some crazy way of bypassing this encounter? Maybe the players figure out how to sink the ship. It's going to be a ghost ship, so it's going to be harder to sink. We're going to like give it some cool attributes and things that make it so that they can't just put a hole in the bottom of it and that it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. But what happens if they bypass the cool protections that we gave to the ship? We should let them do that. We should encourage them to think of these like zany plans that get them what they want. I think that what we should do is that each of the three leading vampires should have the ability to call on the mists, um, similar to the mists of Ravenloft. There are other domains of dread, so this is certainly not it's certainly not a thing that is limited to Barovia. And they should be able to flee the encounter. And they should flee the encounter back to a demiplane where the ship, this ghost ship, is like reborn and regrows. So maybe once the players leave this ghost ship, it vanishes in the fog. And then the pirate captain and the two lieutenants or any of the vampires that were able to escape via a magic item that lets them teleport into the mists, into this like pocket do domain where the ship regrows. So if the captain falls in this one-on-one -on -one combat, I think maybe both lieutenants at that point decide to cut their losses and they also flee to this domain. And then that allows these villains to come back later. And you can think of what the captain version of those lieutenant stat blocks that we worked on looks like because one of them will now become captain. I was just thinking that you they get promoted. And I really like that idea because it also asks the question, who is promoting them? What is the patron of this demiplane? What is the driving power behind this demiplane that is keeping these villains, you know, going on through, you know, all of the deaths and misery that they've experienced? Yep, exactly. And it could be very similar to Ravenloft, where it's the like the Dark Lords or the Dark Powers are choosing a Dark Lord to to be the captain of this ship. Perhaps the ship is their like domain of dread. And must always have a captain. Exactly. Exactly. So I feel pretty good about this encounter that we've built. Yeah, I think it's dynamic and has many different uh, pieces going on to it. It has the ships and you're on open water. There's lots of things to do with water, like control water you were talking about. And there's also lots of things to do with the minions that are going to be on the board. But the individual big fights that are going on with these lieutenants and with this captain themselves are very interesting. And they're simple, but they're very interesting. Yeah, I think it's going to give each of your different player types a specific enemy that they're kind of like either teamed up with one other person locked in combat with or one-on-one -on -one they need to figure this out and is going to put them in a situation where maybe they try to pull like a swap that we'll see in like television sometimes where your heroes are not able to fight the person they're fighting against but they they swap with their their friend and now all of a sudden they're both in an advantageous fight yeah it's a you know choosing the matchup and in, in the beginning of the fight the villains get to choose the matchup 
but if you can coordinate on your turns you can get the better matchup for your for your own team i think that's a very cool mechanic that can happen and happens in media and getting to see that play out in your own D game is very fun well this was uh this was kind of one of our first improvisational episodes but i feel pretty good about how it went how do you feel ariel i feel uh excited and empowered to run some D&D, which is how I feel after most of the episodes we do. I, I get energized to run D&D. So with this one, I have something specific to run, and I think it's going to go really well. I might just do a one-shot of this uh, really high-level encounter because I don't have a high-level campaign going right now, but I, I think a one-shot could even work for this. It's exciting enough that I could tell a story to my players about why, why they're at sea, and then the combat is interesting enough that I don't need a lot of role-playing and I don't need a lot of build-up to make an amazing, you know, three-hour night of D&D. Yeah, I think I'm going to run it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I was not expecting. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.